Welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Podcast, where we bring engaging evidence-based practices to health and wellness coaches and others who are looking to improve their own lives and that of those around them. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper, and today we are incredibly fortunate to have infectious disease specialist, Dr. Rizwan Sohail of the Mayo Clinic to talk us through the realities and key aspects related to the coronavirus. Dr. Sohail is a professor of medicine and the chair of cardiovascular infectious disease at the Mayo Clinic. He has published over 100 peer-reviewed articles in major medical journals, speaks at a range of national and international events, and is a critical resource for so many at this time of worldwide confusion. We are truly grateful for his willingness to join us today and for our former guest, Dr. Mita Singh, for coordinating this important interview. By the way, if all of these recent developments have you thinking a little bit differently, and you've decided it's time, I'm ready to move forward towards this wellness coach certification, we've got some important news, a big update. We've launched an at-home certification option through the Catalyst Coaching Institute, and it has been approved by the MBHWC. So this allows you to complete your certification without leaving your home and also qualify for the national board certification process before their requirements change, if that's a goal that you have. We just added three days to the calendar, as we still want to keep the personal small group format, even though it's online, all the details, catalystcoachinginstitute.com, or please feel free to reach out anytime. If you want to discuss your specific situation and what that looks like, email is results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. Now, let's listen in as Dr. Sohail provides some critical insights about what we need to know and what we can be doing in the midst of the coronavirus situation. I think you're going to be encouraged. Just a heads up that if you're new to our podcast, today's episode is a bit more serious than normal for obvious reasons. But we're glad you could join us, and we're grateful for Dr. Sohail's time on this episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Podcast. Dr. Sohail, it is very much a pleasure to have you join us. We know your schedule is insane right now. Thank you for making time for us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Thank you. Things are changing on a literally a daily basis when it comes to the coronavirus. Could you summarize the latest insights we've gathered from what we currently know or more more aptly stated what you currently know? All right. So as you stated correctly, the situation is changing over time and very quickly. Uh, What we know so far is that the virus started in Wuhan area of China and in the last uh, two, three months has really spread across the globe. And we're seeing uh, a huge wave of patients being diagnosed in Europe and North America, especially, but also in Asia and Australia. So what we're seeing now is that the certain group of uh, patients are at high risk for getting a serious illness with uh, corona infection especially uh, these include patients above age 60 and uh, much higher uh, mortality, especially in the age above 80. Then patients who are diabetic or have heart disease or chronic lung disease or kidney disease and those who have weakened immune system seem to be at high risk. Is there information the public is missing in the midst of the literally nonstop 24-7 news cycle that we need to be hearing that you think might not be out there right now? I think the most important thing the public needs to know is that there's this sense of helplessness, that there's nothing we can do about it. It's going to spread nonstop. 
and there's this fear in public. And while uh, there is good aspect of fear that people are concerned, uh, but I think there are lots of things that people can do to minimize the spread of infection and should be doing. And what we have seen uh, with the numbers in China in the last couple of days is that uh, in the last 48 hours, they reported pretty much no cases, uh, no new cases. Mm. So that's quite optimistic that the epidemic can be stopped. And uh, the social distancing, the lockdowns, which appear quite radical and draconian at times, yeah. can be quite effective uh, way to curb the epidemic. I mean, China being the epicenter of the disease, and yet with the containment strategies, uh, the overall number of deaths in China were a little above 3,000. Even in a city of Wuhan, which has a you know, population over 10 million, it's like Chicago of China. Uh, so I think there are hopeful signs that things can be done. On the other hand, it's also quite obvious that if no mitigation strategies are put in place and we do not try to contain the epidemic, it will continue to spread and especially affect the most vulnerable uh, portion of the population. Yeah. You, you mentioned there's things that we can do. Anything that we're not already hearing, you know, the washing the hands, the, the social distancing, anything else that we need to get out there to folks? I think a lot of it is uh, focused on uh, social distancing and cleaning the hands and avoiding close contact. But I think uh, one of the things that people need to prepare for is that Currently, a lot of the lockdowns or advisories for social distancing are for the next two, three weeks. Mm -hmm. However, based on what we've seen in China, it took them several months to stop the epidemic. So therefore, people have to also start thinking and preparing for a long-term plan and adjust to maybe a new way of doing business and going around like you know, socializing is that uh, people who have the ability to work from home if they're in IT or finance or industries like that, uh, have to think about long-term plans. Uh, parents with, you know, who have kids in school or uh, colleges, they have to start preparing and figuring out how to best uh, uh, do the distant learning. Uh, until the summer when we expect that with all the mitigation, social distancing and everything, the, the curve starts to flatten and go down. And then perhaps we could uh, start to go back towards more of a, you know, the, the usual way of doing business. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's go best case and worst case. How long do you see, again, on both extremes, this current status that just, as you noted, it just feels extreme. It, it, this social distancing, how long do you feel like that's going to need to continue? Best case scenario? Worst case scenario? I think the best case scenario is that if people actually follow the advice of the government uh, and actually avoid large gatherings of more than 10 people and stay at home if possible, and if they're sick especially, then uh, avoid contacting other folks, then uh, we could look towards the tail end of the epidemic in three, four months. However, looking at the, the news and the fact that people are still uh, in many states and locations, going to the bars and restaurants and beaches and crowded places, if that trend continues, uh, then I think it could be 12 to 18 months uh, before we're able to go back to the, to the way things were before the epidemic. Okay, so you're bringing up a, a lot of questions here. So end of the epidemic in three to four months, but 
Are you seeing that as the social distancing is going to need to continue during that entire time? Or is this two-week focus time that everyone's talking about right now, will that start to be able to loosen up a little bit at that point? Or is it just a wait and see? We'll just have to reevaluate in a couple of weeks. I think pretty much all of the above, because to me, it seems that the two, three weeks gives us time to, first of all, try to the flatten the curve, not end the epidemic, but to flatten it so we don't see logarithmic or exponential increase in cases. Mm-hmm. However, uh, two, three weeks will not be enough time, in my opinion, to see the end of epidemic. It gives us time to prepare ourselves. It also gives us time to figure out uh, what are we going to do after the two, three weeks of the intense lockdown. It also uh, gives us ability to be able to do testing more frequently because one of the biggest problems uh, from a healthcare perspective in the U.S. that we are struggling with is we just don't have the capacity to test people as much as we would like. And therefore, uh, we are trying to ration and only test the high-risk individuals of those with you know, clear symptoms. Well, we know that the 80% of the patients who get infected have mild or minimal uh, symptoms. And while they may not be sick themselves, they can continue to spread to others. But in two, three weeks, if we ramp up the testing capacity, uh, then anybody with symptoms will be able to quickly assess if they have corona or some other respiratory illness. And if they do have corona, then they'll be able to isolate them and quarantine them. But until then, everybody needs to be isolated because how do we tell the difference between a regular winter virus or mm-hmm. a coronavirus? And, and we can't. Uh, that's the limitation. Okay. So with the testing, maybe this is a service we can provide for our listeners. It sounds like with this limited number that are available currently, it's going to change in two, three, four weeks. But with the current limitation in the ability to test the number of people we'd like to test... If you're a young, generally healthy individual, should you hold off on testing at this point and instead simply follow the the two weeks of self-quarantine guidelines? Yeah, so I think at this point in time, everybody, uh, whether with symptoms or no symptoms, uh, should try to practice the social distancing and uh, not go to work if they don't have to, especially if even if you're young and healthy and just don't feel well, even if you don't have typical symptoms of disease, then definitely stay at home, not visit friends and family at this time. After two, three weeks, when we have enough testing capacity, then we'll be able to screen the patients uh, who have symptoms. And then if they're negative, then they could continue to uh, do the work. Okay. Okay. So for right now, in this moment, if you've got, if you're young, healthy, you don't have immune issues, hold off on going to get tested because they need those tests for folks in different situations. That advice will change in two to three weeks because we'll have the capacity to test. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah. At the moment, we're quite optimistic with, with multiple labs developing their own test results and the Roche Diagnostics and including Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic and UCSF. So we think that in the next uh, two, three weeks, uh, they'll definitely ramp up the uh, testing capacity. And with that, uh, we'll be able to screen individuals uh, fairly quickly to see if they have respiratory symptoms. And if they do test them, get the same day results and let them know if they had corona or not. 
And that would give us an ability to let people go back to work uh, if they are otherwise healthy and have no symptoms, or even if they have symptoms, but they're negative for testing. And we could diagnose they have some other uh, cause for their fever or flu-like symptoms. Now, to me, that sounds like outstanding news, because right now it just feels like we are are doing the right thing, really shutting everything down, pulling back social the whole thing. But you're saying once we're able to test and we're able to give almost immediate results to anybody who needs to be tested, then we can let the let the air out of this extreme level of social distancing and people are, will be able to get back, not to normal life, but to a more normal life. Again, am I hearing that correctly? Because that sounds encouraging. I know you don't predict the future, but it sounds encouraging. Yeah, I think depending on how much testing capacity we have, we'll be able to loosen some of the very strict guidelines for social distancing. What our honestly worry is that because even though a majority of people are trying to follow the social distancing guidelines, there is a sizable minority which are not. And they may continue to spread the illness and therefore we may see multiple waves of infections. So I think it's really important that for the next two, three weeks, people really try to adhere to the current uh, guidelines for social distancing. Okay. And once we have the test, uh, I am uh, hopeful that uh, we'll be able to quickly test people with symptoms and then they could start to resume some of the normal activities. Okay, good. That, that's very encouraging. That's, uh, thank you for sharing that. Could you walk us through some of the typical timelines once, in terms of the symptoms once infected? What would someone initially notice? How would the symptoms then change? And how do they know when it's resolved? Yeah, so majority of the patients will develop symptoms uh, after four to six days of being exposed to an acquiring virus. There is a range of uh, time, though. Uh, some people start to manifest the symptom as soon as two to three days after acquiring the infection, and it could be up to 12 days. Now, there are some reports of people getting symptoms two, three weeks after the exposure, uh, but at the moment, it's unclear if the initial exposure caused the infection or let's say I got exposed to somebody with corona today and then got exposed to someone else again, which I did not know had corona two weeks from now. And then in four weeks, I get the symptoms. It'll be really difficult to know uh, if the initial exposure caused the infection and the symptoms did not appear for four weeks right. or was it subsequent exposure. In terms of symptoms, uh, the most common symptom is fever. It's reported that somewhere, uh, you know, close to 90 to 95% of the patients do have fever. So that's the biggest uh, uh, screening tool that we have right now. Okay. This is followed by cough, which happens, you know, somewhere between 50 to 80% of the uh, patients. And it's usually dry cough. And this is followed by shortness of breath, which is seen in a third of the patients. And then there are a host of symptoms of headaches, uh, could be having some nausea, vomiting, sore throat. An interesting finding that has been reported is that uh, very few patients, uh, based on what we know, have sneezing uh, due to uh, coronavirus, mm. this, this novel coronavirus. So the patients uh, or the people who are sneezing around you are less likely to have uh, this novel coronavirus 
and more likely to have some other seasonal uh, respiratory virus. That'll be encouraging to the folks that got sneezed on today. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Okay. What aspect of this whole process has been the biggest surprise to you? I think the biggest surprise has really been how infectious uh, this uh, virus has been uh, and how quickly it spread. The other surprising part is that uh, while we understand that there's some group of people above age 60, especially above 80, or immunocompromised, those with organ dysfunction, which are at high risk for infection, there are several reports of otherwise young people, healthy adults with normal immune system between age 16 and 60 who suddenly get sick and sick enough to be in the hospital, some of them also requiring intensive care and being on a ventilator. And that's really unclear as to why that happens because the the reported death rate in this kind of healthy adult population is, you know, 0.1 or 0.2%, uh, while the overall death rate may be 0.5% in best case to 2% in the worst case scenario. Why are these people getting sick? It's really unclear. There are some reports that there are two different kinds of viruses uh, being circulated, one with a higher mortality of like 70% or so, and the other one with a mortality of less than 30% in patients who have uh, severe illness. Uh, so maybe there are different strains being circulated. Uh, are there other things we don't know why some otherwise healthy adults? You know, there are reports of healthcare workers who are otherwise healthy physicians, nursing staff, respiratory therapists getting severe infection as well with no clear reason. So this is what's surprising to me is that uh, one is the rapid spread uh, and the other is how some otherwise healthy people, young people get really sick requiring intensive care. Uh, and we can't really pinpoint to the reasons. Hopefully, we learn more uh, as we move forward. So coming back to the this whole process with life, it sounds like a vaccine won't be available for at least a year. How does this play out until that time? You talked about after we have the ability to test more people that we can test, you know you're clear, you can go back to somewhat normal life. How do you see life playing itself out three, four months from now? We have plenty of opportunity to test the curves been flattened. The the healthcare facilities are able to meet the demand that's out there for treatment. Now what? Like what? Do you, what do you see happening three months from now with travel and work and restaurants and all these other things when those capacity issues have been taken care of? Yeah, I think one of the big unknown factors uh, is uh, what's referred to as herd immunity, which means that. When a majority of the population gets exposed to a certain virus, most of the healthy adults develop an immune response to it. And then it really limits the spread of infection. And how the herd immunity will play out in this uh, coronavirus outbreak is yet unknown, but I think it would play a role. Uh, You know, this is similar to what we see in, for instance, for the vaccine preventable diseases or the naturally immunity that we see, for instance, in chickenpox. So before the chickenpox vaccine was available, it's a highly contagious virus, uh, but a lot of the otherwise healthy uh, children got chickenpox and they were immune. And because they were immune, they would not get the infection from someone and then transmit to someone else. Uh, Similarly, for the vaccine-preventable illnesses, if there are like 100 kids in one class and 90 have had the vaccine for that illness, 
those 90 themselves would not pick it up, the virus from someone else, and then transmit to others. So then it would protect those 10% of the kids who are unvaccinated due to various reasons, and the overall disease spread goes down. Uh, we are hopeful that uh, something like that uh, will be seen with the corona outbreak as well, that healthy adults will develop immunity. And then that would, I mean, if we had 50, 60, 70% of the population exposed who are themselves immune uh, and not a mechanism to transmit to others, that would certainly limit the disease spread. Uh, but it's something we cannot say that will definitely happen, but I expect we'll see some of it. Also, I think uh, similar experience may be seen in Europe as well. Uh, I mean, right now, everything seems very a doom and gloom scenario because we are reaching the peak of the epidemic uh, in the next couple of weeks. So right now, we are kind of in the worst case scenario at the moment. And it's uh, difficult to be too optimistic. But I think uh, we'll start to have some normalcy uh, by summer. Let's let's spin off this for a second, away from coronavirus to the flu, since you brought up this this idea of the herd immunity, which I wasn't familiar with. Can you talk to us, the folks listening to this, health wellness performance is very important to them. Obviously, there's a lot of controversy about the flu shot. I'm a big believer in it personally. Can you talk to us about how that might help or hinder the the herd immunity any related concepts to that you'd like to share with us while we're on this topic of vaccines? Yeah, so I think one of the challenges and unique thing about the influenza virus itself is that it changes uh, every year. So every year a new vaccine has to be made and the vaccine is made based on the best guess of what's circulating in tropical countries during summer and we expect that something like that we circulate in you know, Northern Hemisphere in winter time, So a lot of like modeling is done and we try to predict what would come. And therefore, the influenza vaccine in some seasons is really effective. Sure. And the other seasons may not work well because we just didn't predict what strain we are going to get. And uh, the other thing about the influenza vaccine is that there is good data to show that it prevents severe disease and hospitalization and death due to influenza, although it may not always protect from getting, you know, quote-unquote flu itself. Sure. So some people feel like, oh, I got the influenza vaccine and still got a flu. But I would say, like, if you didn't die from it, then then the vaccine works. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty good tip, right? So what about doing the flu vaccine to protect others? You know, we're, we're talking about this coronavirus and the social distancing. Even if you would be fine one of the reasons for following that guidance is to protect those who don't have strong immunity. Does that concept play itself out at all with the flu vaccine? Is one of the reasons to get it, maybe not to help me, but to help those people that I'm around? Or am I going down the wrong path here? No, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, that's one of the reasons we mandate that all the healthcare workers get the influenza vaccine, even if they're healthy and most of them are uh, you know, we have residents and fellows in the training programs who are young. Uh, it's really to protect our patients uh, because if an otherwise healthy adult were to get influenza, most likely they will just get a mild disease and get better. However, if at-risk people like elderly, immunocompromised, patients with multiple diseases get influenza, they could die. And 
you know, we don't want to downplay this epidemic of coronavirus, but we need to remember that every year, like 30 million plus Americans get influenza, up to 500,000 are hospitalized due to that, 50 to 60,000 die just in the United States uh, with influenza-related complications. And globally so far, we've seen like, you know, at present up to maybe 10,000 deaths due to coronavirus. So uh, still on a daily basis, uh, more people are dying with uh, influenza-related complications globally every week than all the people have died due to coronavirus in the last, you know, three months or so. Wow. Wow. That's good perspective. Really good perspective. Just two more questions. What are we learning as scientists and as a society as a result of this coronavirus outbreak? Yeah, first of all, I think what we learned is that uh, we've learned to be humble uh, because... Mm, uh, so good. Uh, we are able to uh, quickly stop the epidemics and that uh, we are relying a lot on medicines uh, and technology uh, to stop the epidemics. But now we are in that situation where we're going back to how we used to deal with epidemics uh, before all these vaccinations and everything was was available and which we are taking for granted these days. The other thing uh, that we are learning is that in times of pandemics, selfishness and you know living in bubbles and defining us versus others and you know this is their problem and not our problem mm-hmm. can really lead, lead to uh, much uh, difficult and worse situations. So these are the times people need to come together, uh, you know, and have a sense of equity and community and solidarity. And one of the unfortunate things that has happened in the last uh, several decades, especially in the last decade or so, uh, is that the uh, globally there has been this uh, mistrust between governments and the populations and the scientific community and the general population. And I think that that is a big problem that we need to address going forward. Mm. The rise of the fake news, misinformation, disinformation, uh, people spreading untrusted, unreliable information on social media. And we need to somehow as a society need to figure out how do we deal with this going forward? Very well said. Very well said. Last question, wide open. What words of wisdom would you have for health and wellness coaches or others who are acting as sounding boards for a lot of, frankly, nervous people right now? Yeah, I think, first of all, uh, be safe yourself. You know, practice Mm -hmm. what is being told by the government, which is, you know, uh, cleaning hands often, uh, staying at home if you're sick, then uh, covering, coughing and sneezing, uh, wear a face mask, surgical mask if you're sick and you need to go outside, clean and disinfect surfaces. But also, I think people need to remember that just because there is a a guidance to restrict social gatherings and large gatherings of more than 10 people does not mean they just sit on a couch and just watch TV all day. They can still go out and jog if they're not like crowded places. They can exercise at home. A lot of people have equipment at home that they can use to exercise, continue to eat healthy, Uh, you know, read books, uh, get information from reliable sources, get good nutrition, don't panic. And if you feel unwell, then call your healthcare provider and see if you can get tested. And if that 
is available, then definitely get tested just to make sure that uh, you don't have the disease. But in case there is not enough testing capacity available and you feel unwell, then uh, just uh, stay at home at least for the next few weeks as things get better. Dr. Sohel, I am so appreciative. You, You got this scheduled in in such a short time period. Again, I know your schedule has got to be crazy right now. Outstanding information. I think reality, but also encouraging. So thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you as always for joining us. This is an important time on a global level. We will come through this together, but we need to avoid the noise and focus on what is truly credible. That has always been our creative catalyst to do our very best to help you avoid the fads, avoid the headlines, and dig into the evidence. Now, more than ever, that is mission critical. We're grateful you trust us to be a resource for you. In the midst of all this craziness, this has actually been a a pretty groundbreaking week for our podcast. We launched the five-minute Monday morning catalyst to start your week off on the right foot. We shifted the release of our traditional episodes to Wednesdays and we introduced our new podcast artwork. Thank you very, very much for your support that brought us to this point. It's a big point, and it wouldn't have happened without you. It means a lot, and we hope you enjoy these updates. As always, if you ever have questions related to health and wellness coaching, whether how it fits into your own career pursuits or as a way to enhance your organization's employee wellness program, please feel free to reach out to us via email at results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com or our website, CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper signing off. Make it a great rest of your day, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Podcast.